Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, we pass through the wormhole doorway into the ludicrously complex and flawless Pixar Cinematic Universe theory. And then Brett admires a technology-loving super genius with an Amish beard named Kevin Kelly to discuss his longtime favorite book, What Technology Wants. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. What I do. How are you? <laughs> I'm, uh, you're probably not surprised by this. I am not a millionaire due to my investment in GameStop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I think that news broke right about the same day that our episode came out. Yeah, I think I'm uh, I'm actually a 7,000 less air. Is that a thing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think they're going to be creating all kinds of new classes for the things that happened to people recently. Well, I, I can tell you this. I'm not a loser yet because I haven't sold the stock. So if you think about it, I just own stock at a higher price than what other people usually pay. <laughs> Perfect. You own a imaginary slips of paper that fluctuate wildly. They may never be be worth what you initially paid for them. That's what they call them, uh, volat- volatility sheets. It looks like uh, your spirits are high, so that makes you a winner in my book, buddy. You know, in this in the spirit world, money is just a concept, and uh, I don't know what you think about this materialism around us, but it's all an illusion, my friend. Well, one good thing about materialism is all the awesome toys, like for instance, this VR setup sitting right next <laughs> to me on my desk. So I can't bag on materialism too bad. Well, that that illusion is also an illusion. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, VR is the ultimate illusion. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I've played uh, quite a bit of VR in my day, and when I first got my VR system, I was definitely having like almost like VR daytime hallucinations, where I would start to see like the you, you create like this bounding box around your play area, and if you go outside of it, like this blue cage will pop up. And I I spent like probably. 30 hours in like three days in VR when I first got it. And I was starting to see that in the real world. I was like, Oh my God, this is like, this is like something out of sci-fi, like a VR creep into my real life. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty crazy, but uh, that is definitely going to be the future of inter- of entertainment. In my opinion. You know, I actually notice the world is more pixelated when I first wake up, like when it's just starting to buffer in the morning. You ever get that? Oh Yeah. When you have a bad connection to your avatar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've talked about this before. <laughs> so what you got for the off top, buddy? Oh, man, dude, you're going to love this. Oh, I can't wait. Um, What's going on? So in honor of our eternal conflict concerning the whole Disney Pixar thing, where uh, you contend that they are different enemy uh, entities, and I claim that they are intimately connected, perhaps even just different names for basically the same company, and if nothing else, I'm positive that Disney owns Pixar. Now, that would probably be easy for me to look up and confirm, but I would rather keep this pointless debate going. But because of our love for the content that this slash these companies put out, I was researching Pixar films this week. And did you know 
There is a Pixar cinematic universe theory that proposes that every Pixar film takes place in the same world and in the same timeline. I actually have heard this. I, I haven't have you gone deep a, into it? I, I haven't. I think I saw this theory on Reddit and there, you know, it was like, oh yeah, Toy Story. There was like this little Easter egg was in Finding Nemo or something, but I have not really gone uh, into a deep dive now. Well, I have enough content here. I could fill an entire second content piece. So wow. I'm going to burn through this fast. We're going to save all <laughs> questions until the end. So take some notes. Okay, sounds and good. Speaking of two content pieces in one episode, I don't know if anybody really knows this because we never released these episodes, but when we were first starting the show, our first idea was that we would each bring one content piece every single week and we would basically like have these dueling pieces of content <laughs> trying to sell each other on it. So you guys can all be thankful that the show did not turn out that way because I think that we probably would have burned out and not had anything to talk about after a few months if we had done it that way. I think we actually recorded like one or two uh, unaired pilot episodes like that and uh, it was exhausting and they weren't very good. <laughs> it was way too much. <laughs> all right. So let's get into this theory. So I, like you were saying, you know, any any production house that is as prolific as Pixar will add like this little subtle nods and Easter eggs to, the, to their other film and referencing their other work. But it goes so much deeper, like almost to a ridiculous fashion. And this theory was originally popularized by this guy named John Negroni. So his theory and the timeline starts with The Good Dinosaur, which is a criminally underrated film that got really bad reviews, but I personally love it. So, I, think, I think that's the only Pixar film I've never seen. It's a good one. You should Is check it? it out. I should. Yeah. All right. So this sets up an alternate Earth where the dinosaurs are never killed by the asteroid and they start to develop a human-like intellect, which starts setting up the world for sentient animals. We also see that the dinosaurs are starting to struggle in the world where humans are becoming dominant. Next, and millions of years in the future, is the movie Brave, which is the archery princess movie, which features a witch character who becomes central to the theory. Now, the witch has the ability to transport to new locations when walking through doorways, a la Monsters, Inc. She also has a carving of what appears to be solely in her cabin. Next up is Incredibles 1 and 2, which takes place in the 1950s. And the theory claims that the U.S. government created superheroes with technology designed to harness human emotions. And although the superheroes eventually all die out, the collection of human emotions continues due to the efforts of the By and Large Corporation, which is the mega corporation from Wally. Now, the By and Large Corporation also makes extensive use in the future of the AI tech that's created by Syndrome, who's the bad guy in The Incredibles. Next in the theory, in the timeline, is Toy Story 1 and 2, which takes place in the 90s. And this claims that the By and Large Corporation created the toys to harvest the power of human emotions, and the energy from harvesting them is what's making the toys sentient. We also start to see the toys starting to resent humanity around this point. And then in quick succession are Finding Nemo, Finding Dory, and Ratatouille, all taking place in the early 2000s. Each of these shows the continued evolution of the human-like intellect of animals that starts with a good dinosaur. This also seems to point to the animal intellect increasing as they have closer exposure to humanity, as referenced uh, by Remy the Rat and his ability to work with humans and become a top chef. 
Then Toy Story 3 and 4 take place in the mid-2000s, and they feature a ton of references to other Pixar movies like Darla from Finding Nemo. There's a hint that Andy knows Carl and Ellie from Up, and potentially even a glimpse at a slightly older Boo from Monsters, Inc. who attends the daycare. This film shows that Buzz is powered by, by and large, batteries, another connection between the toys and the corporation. Then in Toy Story 4, we start to see how the toys feed off of human emotions to gain sentience when Bonnie creates Forky from the tra- from pieces of trash, and her love for him brings him to life. Then next up, uh, next is Up, which shows the beginning of the pollution that plagues the world in Wally, as well as the by and large corporation's toxic influence on the world as the construction equipment that comes to tear down Carl's house is brandishing their logo. Inside Out, Coco, and Soul all take place in the modern day. Inside Out continues the exploration of the power of human emotions with joy being the most powerful. And uh, this starts to hint at why the monsters in Monsters, Inc. eventually settle on joy and happiness as being the most efficient power source. There's a case to be made that Bing Bong from Inside Out is actually a monster from another point in the timeline that was sent to harvest Riley's happiness when she was a child. Then Coco and Soul explore the idea of an afterlife in this universe, and uh, Soul introduces the idea uh, that pre-life souls like 22 can inhabit different bodies on Earth, which provides another way that animals or perhaps even toys could gain sentience. The Cars series takes place 100 years in the future after humanity has abandoned the Earth, as seen in Wally. <laughs> And as the by and large robots are conducting their cleanup operation, the cars are powered by the by and large slash syndrome AI technology. The cars are facing a, ga- a gas crisis in the series, and it's revealed that eventually they can die off. In Cars 3, the cars encounter the first animal life when they almost run over crabs on the beach. This is the first such animal life they encountered in all three movies, hinting that the Wally robots' cleanup efforts are actually working. Then Wally takes place in the year 2800, which is 700 years later after the cars have all died off and shows Wally cleaning up one of the last polluted places on Earth. His efforts paved the way for humanity's return. A bug's life moves forward a, another century. Bugs and some animals seem to have survived the pollution of Earth, but the bugs in the film don't show fear of humans because they haven't really been exposed to many of them since not a lot of them actually returned to Earth. And while it might sound unrelated to most of the other events in the Pixar universe, Onward and the creatures that populate the film, the fantasy creatures, serve as a missing link between the sparsely populated Earth we saw at the end of Bugs Life and the monster-ruled future in Monsters, Inc. Then Monsters, Inc. uh, shows the Earth in the year 5000. The inhabitants of the Earth have now evolved into an entirely new species with the monsters, and they use doors to travel into children's rooms to harvest their fear and their happiness. The monsters are actually traveling through time with the use of the door technology, which is creating wormholes. And the big twist in the Pixar theory is that Boo is actually the witch from Brave. And after Soli leaves her, she spends her entire life trying to discover the magic of the doors. Eventually, she learns that the doors are allowing uh, the creatures and humans to travel through time. And this is why the witch uses a door to travel and she has a carving of Soli, and she's obsessed with Soli-like bears. And that's the way that the Pixar timeline theory ties everything together in all the movies, which oh, is, my Lord. <laughs> needless to say, it's a lot. I Honestly, I, I want to poke holes in this, but I can't. It's airtight. 
<laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> it's more airtight I mean, than a submarine. Now, whether <laughs> this is all, you know, whether it was intended by Pixar, which is not likely, or if it's just simply confirmation bias, I mean, it'd be pure speculation on our part. But I do find it fascinating that someone spent countless hours tying all of this together. You know, there does seem to be a bit of hand waving here and there, like with the things in the beginning of the timeline about like the by and large corporation creating mm-hmm. the toys with human emotions, which is something that I have never saw hinted at in any of the films. But, you know, it's it is extremely entertaining and really highlights like all the overlapping references that Pixar layers into everything they do. It's absolutely fascinating. That's that's pretty good. If if there's a lesson here, I mean, I don't think it was intentional, but it just goes to show that we can find patterns in anything. And if you believe strong enough, uh, just like if you think Game <laughs> GameStop stocks are definitely going up, then uh, you can <laughs> <laughs> you can just fit reality. You'll believe in anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just reality will eventually just mold to your hopeful expectations. Well, that's really interesting, man. Totally. That's, I'm really happy you. What's your feeling on it? Uh, I mean, I feel like there is a little bit of, there's definitely some holes you could poke in it specifically like towards the beginning. Like what I was saying about like all the ties to by and large being, uh, being inserted like early in the story, like in the toy story era. But, now, do, but you said Buzz I could see like how you could retcon that. Right. So Buzz Lightyear's batteries are from By and Large. Is there like a scene that shows like the By and Large logo on the batteries or something? Yeah. The theory says that it happens in uh, Toy Story 3 and 4. Dude, I mean, so that's, that's undeniable. You have to retcon that back into the beginning. <laughs> and also like the idea that By and Large was, you know harvesting human emotion to power the toys that's something that again like that's never been specifically referenced in my mind but i could see like if you're you know you have your your crime board on the wall with all the (laughs) red string tying everything together that you start making these connections especially you've been going days and days without sleep which is what it seems like this guy john (laughs) negroni probably was doing when he was putting this together well john negroni Thank you for your sacrifice for all those sleepless nights watching all the Pixar movies, uh, probably messed up on some sort of psychoactive chemical, or maybe you just didn't take your bipolar medication. We appreciate it, John. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a link that I'll share that will break this all down. You guys can check it out. It's, It's awesome. Nice. Well, thanks for bringing that to my attention. So what's on your, uh, content circuit? You have any Pixar slash Disney slash DreamWorks, which is not related to Pixar at all. Uh, movies on your content circuit. Well, speaking of DreamWorks, yes, my daughters have been watching Trolls World Tour on repeat for oh, weeks. But we don't need to talk about that here. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I did listen to this. It's an old episode of, of uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. It's number 873 with Stephen Coulter, who's, and we've talked about him before. He's the flow researcher. And uh, he's that the interview is absolutely fascinating. And it was like a lot of flow information that I had never even heard of. He talks a little little bit about TDCS in there, which we're both huge fans of. But uh, he has a book which is called Stealing Fire. And he said it's like the 
it talks about the similarities between like Navy SEALs and soccer moms doing yoga and people using mind altering chemicals and all of these things, the, the uh, connection and their ability to produce flow. Uh, so apparently all of these actions create the same type of like neurochemical release and that aids in, you know, like quieting your prefrontal cortex and allowing you to operate on autopilot, which is, you know, what they think flow really is. So this was a really awesome episode. Um, I don't think that Joe Rogan needs a bump from us, so we're not going to link it. But um, if you guys are into Joe Rogan's podcast, check out 873 with Stephen Coulter. That was really great. That's awesome. You know, the uh, uh, the silver medalist Olympian, John Coyle, that I went one-wheeling with, he actually knows Stephen Kotler, um, and you know he's written a book on flow state psychology and is like really interested in that subject matter. So it was really cool to hear somebody's firsthand experience with one of these, one of these flow state researchers. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That would be like a dream meeting in my opinion. For sure. It definitely felt be like uh, meeting serendipitous. A, meeting a God. <laughs> that's how I feel. What about you, man? Anything um, new? Well, so um, honestly, with studying at, uh, at airline training, um, I don't have a my, – my content circuit hasn't really changed a whole lot. I have been keeping up with WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. Dude, this is honestly the best thing to come out of the MCU. I mean, this is – Oh, my God. Uh, it's so original. It's so good. Uh, WandaVision is to Marvel movies what The Mandalorian is to Star Wars movies. I mean, it is fantastic. Wow. Oh man. Yeah. I've got to check that out now. Like I, I hadn't really put a whole lot of effort into like applying it to my content circuit, but with that kind of raving review, because Mandalorian is definitely my favorite star Wars, anything ever. Yeah. It's excellent. Um, I also did finish the Netflix show surviving death. Oh my God. I think that this is probably the like best documentary series I've ever seen. That provides like real evidence, I think, for reincarnation and poltergeist. And I mean, it is absolutely a great show, man. Like I, I there was some pretty unbelievable cases of kids, kids that are like 18 months old, three years old that are talking about when they died in a plane crash fighting in World War Two or. uh Oh, yeah, I've heard some of those oh stories. Oh, my gosh. I mean, some of this stuff. It's pretty it, creepy. It's hard to refute, man. Like, it's it's pretty legit. And um, Man, check that out, too. And I've also That's been, two bests in a row, and we know that uh, you are not prone to hyperbole. I, so those have got to be some <laughs> real reviews. Don't lie to our listeners. You know I love hyperbole more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and finally, I've actually nothing less from you. (laughs) Uh, Lastly, I've been uh, playing this video game for about four hours every day. It's the seven thirty seven three hundred PM flight simulator. Oh, (laughs) is it Microsoft Flight Sim? (laughs) No, but it's very realistic. Is this uh, is this like a requirement for your school? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I, nice. thought be, I thought it'd oh, be funny the, calling it a video the, game. It's just this the is flight just sim that's uh, mounted on the uh, <laughs> mounted on the big hydraulic arms. It costs that's, like ten thousand dollars a minute. <laughs> that's the one I'm talking about. I get it now. Okay. Actually, I'm very jealous of that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I guess my my joke didn't uh, c- 
come over Zoom very well, but it might be your as, internet connection. It might be. It might be. It's not great tonight. It's really blowing your delivery. <laughs> Everybody loves an awkward conversation over Zoom. It's you know, it's uh, it's just the way things are these days. Exactly. Yeah, you take your. Pixar cinematic universe theories with a dash of awkwardness and you have got the content clearing house. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break and then we will come back and we will get into some content. Ooh, content. Hello listeners. Don't hit the skip forward button just yet. This is not an ad. This is a call for you guys and gals to get involved with the show. So we want to hear from you about your favorite pieces of content and why they're the best. Or you can even tell us if you've checked out a piece of content because we recommended it and uh, if you loved it or not. So contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com or on Instagram or Facebook at The Content Clearinghouse. And we will read your letters on the air right here. Thanks so much for listening. We love you guys. Okay, back to the show. Ooh, content. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, content? <laughs> you got some content coming at you, buddy. I'm actually really excited to talk about this. I am talking about a book that has had a profound impact on me. Uh, this actually is one of those pieces of content that's so important to me. It's truly made for the Content Clearinghouse, and the Content Clearinghouse was made to talk about this book. When I first read this, it was about, I'd say, 10 years ago. Uh, it completely shifted, completely expanded my understanding and perspective on a particular topic that we frequently discuss on the show. This is one of those topics, it's prevalent in all of our lives. And Wait, can I guess? Go for it. The one-wheel owner's manual. <laughs> Close, but no cigar, buddy. <laughs> All right, continue. <laughs> so it's amazing to me that just a measly 416 pages worth of words can lift the veil on reality and, for me at least, provide a better understanding of the fundamental driving force in our universe. I mean, to me, that makes something a must-read. So the topic that this book is about that I'm discussing is technology. And the book is What Technology Wants. Oh, interesting. This is something that you have been talking about, I'd say maybe for 10 years now. I've been talking about it for 10 years, for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more about it because it's something that I've, I've always wanted to read, but it's like everything else, like I haven't gotten around to it yet. So I'm really excited to hear a deep dive on it. The way that I try to get people today to read Yuval Noah Harari's books is the way that 10 years ago I was trying to get people to read What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly. I actually did get Derek to read this book. Um, and it was like, I think this is the first book that I like forced him to read because I, I was just so into it. And I still am. I can't stop thinking about this. Um, so What Technology Wants, it's a nonfiction book. It's it's uh, written by the author Kevin Kelly. It was published in 2010. Now, Kevin Kelly, he's a fascinating man. He has some interesting connections to um, really the development of today's technology. So he's this extensive traveler. Even from a young age, he lived nomadically with very few possessions. 
Uh, he actually intentionally avoided relying on or using a lot of technology. Uh, even as an adult, he spoke of not having a TV in his room or in, I mean, in, in his house. Um, so as his kids were growing up, they weren't overexposed to technology. He both lived with and studied the Amish. And in one of the most interesting chapters of the book, he discusses the relationship that the Amish have with technology. So, you know, I think there's this stereotype, and I this is certainly what I thought as well before I read his book, that the Amish are kind of anti-technology or they, they don't really use technology. But actually, they... They do use technology. I mean, there's different types of Amish communities, and uh, they use different pieces of technology in different ways. But but what they do is they sort of try out a new piece of technology. They might let the younger member of the community try it out, and then they get together as a community, and then they have a sort of democratic decision uh, and decide together if they want to adopt a certain tool or machine and they want to you know they want to make sure that this is a really mindful choice for that particular Amish community. So this is something that Kevin Kelly I think really takes to heart and speaks of in this book. But the way I'm talking about him, I mean you might think that he's anti-technology or that he doesn't know anything about technology and Kevin Kelly has this sort of Amish style beard. So it he it would it definitely he fits that assumption that you might have. But the truth is, Kevin Kelly, he co-founded Wired Magazine in 1993. Oh, wow. He served as the executive editor for seven years. Uh, he's also the founding editor and co-publisher of the popular Cool Tools website, which has been reviewing tools daily since 2003. He co-founded the ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved in the launch of The Well, which is a pioneering online service started in 1985. I mean, he... No technology. Like, this is the guy that's looked at all forms of technology, big picture, and also these communities that are, uh, you know, maybe not as quick as everybody else to adopt a new piece of technology. Well, you know, it's like, I mean, what you said about Amish people, like, not, you know, the misconception is that they don't use technology, but that, you know, that misconception seems to seems to be born out of the idea that technology is only like the electric doodads that, right. you know, the virtual reality that I love so much. But I mean, any, basically anything past the evolution of a human poking something with a stick is some degree of technology. It's like some sort of tool development. Absolutely. To make, mm -hmm. you know, to, to compensate for the fact that like our, human bodies are like pink and squishy and we don't have any sharp claws or anything. So, you know, it's, it's our mind that, that's our, that's our primary power in this world. And we use that to kind of like engineer the world around us to, you know, make it possible for us to build skyscrapers and virtual reality headsets. Definitely. I mean, this is something that he addresses early on in the book. I mean, there's so many ways that you could define technology. Um, some uh, A funny observation that he makes is that a lot of times we think of technology as whatever is invented after we are born, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. Um, but, you know, he talks about how cooking is a technology. I mean, it is an external stomach. And when we invented this technology of cooking, we changed over you know thousands of years the way that our teeth 
are shaped and our jaw works and and you know it's it's a very very inclusive term but one didn't of the, it allow us to uh-huh. extract more nutrients from the environment too which allowed our brains to expand into you know the 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 powerful computers that they are today i mean i am a contentologist i am not a biologist but i'm not a foodologist <laughs> i'm i'm certain there was some sort of evolutionary benefit to uh cooking maybe uh not dying of uh salmonella every time you like ate some raw <laughs> every time <laughs> every time so getting into some of his works cuz he's written extensively about technology so uh, his most recent book is the inevitable i have not gotten the chance to read this yet it came out in 2016 uh, it's subtitled Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. I feel like this is Kevin Kelly's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Um, I definitely want to give it a read. You love listicle books. <laughs> I I do. It all it all started uh, when I got on Cracked.com as a young lad. and <laughs> <laughs> oh, They've really gone downhill in the last few years. Oh, my God. They It was like many years ago, and I, you, you couldn't get past like – uh, you know, what one item on the list without seeing 12 ads. That is not Dude, a good sign. So they, there was an era with crack.com where it was basically like all of these bespoke articles by these top level editors and writers. And, you know, they had like a dream team, but they were, they were bought out by some investment firm and they ended up like replacing all the top guys. They replaced the owner uh, and the, the founder and, you know, just basically like streamlined and factory, uh, like assembly lined all these listicle articles. And man, it is just such trash. Now this is in no way an endorsement Ugh. for crack.com. <laughs> this is whatever the opposite of an endorsement is. <laughs> yeah, they suck. So, um, one of Kevin Kelly's actually his first book yeah, I think you're going to find this uh, portion of my of my presentation uh, a little bit uh, interesting, a little fascinating. So it was written in 1992. It's called Out of Control. Its major themes are cybernetics, emergence, self-organization, complex systems, negentropy, and chaos theory, and it could be seen as a work of techno-utopianism. <laughs> Interesting. So on his website, he calls out of control, very long, very complex, very broad and hard to summarize. He says, quote, it's about decentralization and about the way machines are becoming biological and how the internet and a rainforest are connected. And this is a continuing quote. I have been surprised at how many people have read the whole thing. The title is slightly opaque, but it was the best I could do at the time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Rave review. (laughs) So his book is actually uh, this one, Out of Control. It's available for free online. I'm going to link it in the show notes. I haven't gotten the chance to read it. Honestly, I don't know if I'm smart enough to read it. Um, But something fun about this book, um, and this is actually a little fact that ties him to the rest of our beloved content verse. In The Matrix Revisited, which was about the making of The Matrix, Keanu Reeves recounted how each actor had to read Kevin Kelly's book out of control before they could open the original script. Oh my God. That is awesome. Yeah. The Wachowskis definitely had like a vision that went far beyond their movie. Totally. I mean, they, I, you know, they were tapping into whatever this deep wisdom 
that Kevin Kelly seems to have about technology and they wanted to like adopt it. Um, and actually another fun Hollywood factoid. So Kevin Kelly has a screen credit for working on Minority Report, another movie that I love. Great Tom Cruise vehicle as well. Um, and it's actually in the concept stage of Minority Report. So in, I think it was around 2000, Steven Spielberg holed up a bunch of futurists in a hotel on the beach and had them brainstorm what the year 2054 would be like in sufficient detail to film. Hmm. Were you, That's... were you a Minority Report fan? Yeah. Ugh, it was, it. There, there was like, I don't know, there was a little bit of like a, a sheen to it that I would, you know, it seemed maybe a little cheesy in some places. And there were some parts of it that was just hard for me to buy into it completely. But there are also some amazing scenes and concepts in it that kind of like, you know, they kind of overpower that. So I'd say that I'm like on the, I'm on the 90% side of liking Minority Report. I love that, uh, whatever that, um, shotgun is like all the weapons that the cops have are uh, non-lethal and it like yeah like s- that spin gun yeah it's so awesome <laughs> I love it so another fun fact Matt Groening of Simpsons fame he was inspired by Kevin Kelly's life countdown clock on his desktop computer to use on an episode of Futurama <laughs> so on top of all these works um, he's crowdfunded his first work of fiction a techno epic graphic novel set in a unique world with both angels and robots uh, he rounds up his favorite documentary films and educational programs on the website truefilms.com. And this guy didn't even finish college. He was a college dropout. He left university to backpack around Asia and take photographs. He is a like, badass man with a badass Amish beard. It sounds like college might have been holding him back a little bit. <laughs> it's for sure. So let me get into the heart of what technology wants. Um, it's it's a simple concept, I think, if you think about this stuff all the time. Uh, it's not going to take long to summarize. But to really understand the intricacies of his argument and his point of view, of course, I absolutely recommend reading the book. So essentially... The book is making the claim that the same driving force inherent in life, whatever impetus in the universe pushes life from, you know, the single celled organisms that it used to be into the complexity and the diversity that we have today. This force is also driving technology to follow the same evolutionary path. He says that technology is the natural extension of this process. And therefore, it's just another extension of life. It's another kingdom uh, in the, in the you know the tree of life. Wow. Yeah, that's um, again a Joe Rogan uh, reference. Like he's always, I'm not sure where he got this quote, but he's always quoting some futurist saying that human beings are the sexual organs of AI or of the robots. It might be Nick that's- Bostrom. I'm I not think totally that's exactly sure, who but... he's quoting. Yeah. yeah, he's always. I mean, that's like a that's a theme that comes up a lot on the show. Is like you know they're always debating, you know, if the rise of AI will be a good thing or not, and uh, the idea of technology wanting something definitely kind of tends toward it not being a good thing for us potentially. 
Yeah, I guess uh, good is just in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we're the I, only ones with eyes around here, technology. <laughs> I certainly the evolution of life to create humans was probably not good from the perspective of literally any other animal <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's ever existed. It's like any any creature that rises to the the level of really anything that's alive on this planet right now had to leave millions of species in its wake. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, it's hard to think about that as like a, you know, every human feels like they are the most important thing that's ever lived. But I mean, from a cosmic scale, it's like, there's not, there's no significance at all, but it's just, it's so hard to wrap your mind around that as a human. Who's like, you know, you feed off of your, experience and you feed off of your memories and you know all these events that's that have shaped you and so it is it's really hard to it's really hard to think about the fact that something may rise up and you mm-hmm. know make us obsolete yeah you know on that note i i don't when i learn about these kinds of big picture ideas or i you know, listen to Androyan or Carl Sagan talking about the vastness of the universe. I don't feel insignificant necessarily. Like I definitely feel like, uh, you know, we're we're puny on in a, in the terms of a scale. But I feel like having conscious awareness. I mean, it's 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 got to be just such a rare thing. And Kevin Kelly actually talks about this in his book. Starting from the Big Bang, he talks about this this law of the universe that it's constantly moving towards entropy. It's going from a you know high state of energy and it's cooling and it's expanding. But the complexity of life and the way that it needs more energy than the output than what you get on the other end. For example, uh, to sustain a human being, you have to eat so many calories. Okay, so. Let's say you eat some meat, you eat some plants. Now, go down to those animals. Those animals have to eat a certain amount of grass, and they have to eat a lot of the grass, and the grass needs to get all this sun. I mean, just to like sustain you for a day, it takes huge amounts of energy. That goes against the basically the arc of the law of entropy. And he, he calls it in his book, exotropy. Like we are, we are sort of the moving backwards. We are the reverse of what the universe is supposed to be doing. That to me feels significant. I mean, I don't know if it's that rare, but it's, it, it definitely doesn't seem, uh, not important to me. I don't know. Well, maybe it's the scale that is insignificant, but maybe the evolution of conscious life is very significant. And I mean, like, you know, what you're talking about kind of makes me think of, you know, the Occam's razor argument of like all things being equal, the simplest solution is probably right. And first of all, are all things are not equal. So that's a really stupid uh, <laughs> law, but it's, uh, you know, like if you were to punch in the equations into a computer, it definitely wouldn't spit out the way that human life works as being like the most efficient way to go about creating a sentient being. It's, you know, it is a, it seems like a lot of random chance and, you know, it's just a a lot of extinction that came before us that 
gave rise to all these individual evolutionary traits that allow the entire world to function that way that allows us to have VR headsets. And so, yeah, maybe it's uh maybe it is just the scale that I'm, that I'm thinking about whenever I, I say that it's insignificant. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely understand that, that line of thinking for sure. Well, to, to, I, I oh. feel very significant just so you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's because you have all those trophies on your on your wall. Most humble man trophy. <laughs> yeah, there it is, right up there uh, next to my best maps ever. So to uh, to help understand this argument um, that Kevin Kelly is uh, sort of trying to convince the reader of, he introduces this term that he invented. It's kind of like contentology, which now is a real thing that we invented. Yeah, so, I'd say we discovered it. <laughs> so this term uh, that he uses, it's the technium. And it's basically, it's this greater global, massively interconnected system of technology. So um, if you imagine a piece of technology, I think in his speech um, that I, he has a TEDx speech, I'm going to link to in the show notes, he uses the example of a computer mouse. Now, this is a piece of technology that no one person could make. I mean, it's made up of thousands and thousands of other parts and pieces that require their own subsets of technology. And that system or that organism of all these interrelated and codependent parts as a whole, that's the technium. And it's this super organism that Kevin Kelly is really doing his deep dive into. It's 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 this super organism that he is trying to make the argument that this is really an ecology, just like a biological ecology. And so one of the things that happens when you have a system like this is that the behavior of a system is different than one of the parts. You have a – so an example that he uses, if you look at a bee, you can study the bee, you can dissect the bee, but you're not going to understand the hive, because the system of the hive is going to, um, you know, act a little bit different than the individual. So if you have this computer mouse, I mean, you could take it apart, you could dissect it, you could look at the wires, you could, look, but you you wouldn't understand the technium as a whole. Another thing that another point that he makes about systems is that they almost always exhibit emergent tendencies. So they have biases, they lean in certain uh, directions. And so this is where the want comes in. He He's not saying technology or the technium wants something like an intelligent being or it's not a conscious desire. He's saying it more in the way that technology wants something like plants want light, like they lean in a particular way. Or like how humans and... I guess most living creatures want to pass on their genetic coding and reproduce. And it's like, it's not really a conscious choice necessarily that creatures make. It's just, it's just hardwired into life because that's the only way that life progresses and continues on. Yeah. But I mean, even on a more like fundamental level than that, like a single celled organism, like, you know, it, it tends to move in a particular direction by those evolutionary forces. And so he asks, you know, what does technology want? If it's driven by these same evolutionary forces that drive us, I mean, that drive life, 
you know, what does evolution want? What does technology want? It's kind of asking the same uh, same question. So this is a, it is a bit of a controversial topic as far as I can tell. Uh, if you ask a biologist, I mean, they might argue that evolution doesn't want anything. There's no direction. There's no trajectory. But there are some evolutionary biologists that actually agree with Kevin Kelly that the tendency for life is in increasing diversity, complexity, and it's, you know, this larger self-organizing system. So if I use that same example, and he points this out, if you take a single-celled organism, there really is only one way to go towards more complex. But if you look somewhere in the midpoint between, you know, the time of single-celled organisms and where we are now, if you look at the middle and you follow that path of evolution, we almost never see a, a tendency towards less complex. You almost always, in every case, see more complexity. That's like the direction of evolution. That's the direction of biology. And what Kevin is saying, these same trends are what we see in technology, increasing diversity, specialization. I mean, this guy, in my opinion, and you know, I feel like you would agree with me if you read this book too. I mean, this is a super intelligent, well-traveled, big picture genius. He probably put some magic mushrooms in his <laughs> in his Cheerios. Smoked them. <laughs> I mean, this guy. Like he must have had some acid for breakfast and stared at a bunch of binary code and just like realized some deep fundamental secrets to the universe. Like this guy, I, he really understands how things work in my opinion. You know, it's like, um, remember the old joke that we all used to say with our friends, uh, like, wow, what a time to be alive. The most technologically <laughs> advanced era of humanity ever. And be like, yeah, stupid. That's every era that's ever existed. <laughs> but actually, like lately I've been thinking about that. Like it's very possible. This is not the most advanced era. Like when you think about like the things like in ancient Egypt and like the construction techniques for building the pyramids and how so much of that, of that culture was lost and just like buried in the sand. And you, you know, like the, the show, like life after humans. And it shows like, how long would it take for New York to completely disappear? And it makes you think it's like, if ancient civilizations used some kind of digital storage, like we do, it's very possible that if, you know, some natural disaster happened, all of that information could have been lost completely. And it's not, you know, there's, there's definitely like a, there's a precedent for this in like recorded history when the Romans, when Rome fell and Rome left uh, Britain, you know, all of the aqueduct technology and the technology to create roads and things, all of that stuff was lost. And, and, you know, Brit Br the British people were like thrown back into the dark ages. So that very easily could have happened with like a high technology society and, you know, I'm not entirely certain that this is the most technologically advanced era that's ever existed on Earth anymore. I used to think that, you know, undoubtedly it was. Well, I think it, once again, depends on your definition of technology. And and with Kevin Kelly's definition, I mean, if you look at the tree of life and you see that it branches, um, you know, it starts out as a, a trunk 
and then the branches get thicker and they uh, continue to diverge at certain points. Um, you know, we we're at whatever now is, is always at the cutting edge and there's always going to be the most specialization, the most diversity. So I would disagree with that. I mean, uh, you know, a point that he makes is we, we live in a time where not only can you use the most cutting edge technology, but older technologies that are now obsolete uh, for whatever functional purpose they serve, you can still buy them. You can still use them. And I think he uses the example of like old gardening tools. But I mean, think of like medieval weapons. Like you can, there's, you, you have more access to medieval weapons than people probably did in like the 12th century or the 14th century. Like you can there get TV shows about making them. <laughs> you can get anything you want now. I mean, certainly with all of those options, with a global network of interconnected technologies, I mean, this superorganism has never been uh, so complex. It's never been so self-organizing. And he also uses the example that, that we know of. I, uh, okay, I guess <laughs> I guess I can't prove you wrong for sure. But he also uses the example that uh, this technology or this technium, I should say, is now starting to feed itself and more energy is being used to go back into the technium than to be uh, really used on us. And a simple example he uses, so when we drive a car, the fuel or the gas that is burned to move that car, it, it's more of that gas is burned to move the car than to move us. I mean, we are just like such a small piece of it. So that's like a, you know, a little bit of a metaphor. It's a really good point. It, it's a great point. And, you know, another thing that he talks about with this technium, I mean, one person, if you wanted to stop the progress of technology, you wanted to you know, pull the plug, so to speak, a person couldn't do it. A group of people couldn't do it. A country couldn't stop the, you know, the march forwards of technological progress. I mean, this really is almost like a uh, life form of its own. Well, there are certainly weapons on earth that could stop the march of technology. I mean, maybe not, maybe not completely stop it, but if the world was nuked, it would definitely reset technology several hundred years, possibly even more. And it may never get back to where it is now. Maybe. I mean, it, it, it depends if you think that this is a, you know, a march forwards. I mean, there's been mass extinction events of biological life that wiped out, you know, 75% of living things, but then life just picked up uh, right where another it, branch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it just continued to come, you know, uh, to, do what life does. And, and he really thinks that that's what technology does too. That's so, interesting. I mean, it's, you know, a vehicle uh -huh. is more efficient at moving uh, humans than it is at moving itself. A unicycle. The one wheel. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Why did I guess one wheel? I don't know. What a <laughs> unicycle. Is this the unicycle show all of a sudden? <laughs> I mean, it's, so back to this, I mean, it's incredible to me that this book was written in 2010. I mean, he was discussing these topics, you know, long before I feel like they really started striking a chord with, uh, with people in kind of mainstream because of movies like The Matrix, which obviously came out before then. But still, I mean, this is on the forefront of our minds as uh, technology continues to improve at a very rapid pace. Um, 
another couple topics that the book discusses. Now, although he doesn't specifically, um, I mean, the book is not about artificial intelligence. Of course, he discusses artificial intelligence. He talks about the various possibilities, his own opinions about what the probabilities would be for an AI or something with intelligent awareness to form out of these same emergent qualities. And, you know, my opinion on this, he really opened my mind to this. If conscious awareness happens in biology, I mean, that's how we are thinking. Why wouldn't it emerge from the technium? It does seem inevitable. I 100% agree. Uh, Another interesting section of the book that really stuck with me was the controversial chapter about Ted Kaczynski titled The Unabomber Was Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, this was actually a chapter that um, he starts off the chapter saying that he had friends that read the manuscript for this book that told him, do not publish this. um, And he decided to go against their advice. Now, fortunately for us, uh, although Kevin Kelly does appreciate some of the logic of Ted Kaczynski's manifesto, he wholly disagrees with Kaczynski's fundamental belief that technology is inherently evil. I am going to link to um, an article, though, that he wrote. I mean, it's it's very, very interesting. And um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's food for thought, I guess you could say. Like, we definitely like to think of the Unabomber as just some crazy nut, um, which... You know, Kevin Kelly is not saying that it would it would be comforting to think that. But this was a pretty intelligent guy that had some pretty well thought out arguments, but they were basically fundamentally flawed. And as much as he despised technology, uh, Ted Kaczynski was totally reliant on it to enact his, uh, you know, horrible plans. Totally. His entire plan revolved around the mail system, which right? <laughs> wholly dependent on vehicles and airplanes and mail sorting machines. Right. I mean, he was using a book, you know, information technology and print technology in print form. Explosive uh, technology. Explosive, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, wow, that is <laughs> very ironic. Yeah. Um, so one of the, I think it was a surprising thing about this book given that technology seems to be on the receiving end of a lot of the blame for the world's problems right now. Uh, Surprising, but comforting. Kevin Kelly is extremely optimistic about the future and about the progress of technology. And coming from him, I mean, it's, it's very comforting to me. He has been a techno optimist from the get go. And although he does advocate that society could benefit from having a more Amish like attitude towards technology, by, like I was saying before, choosing what we bring into our lives instead of just grabbing the next newest, you know, whatever, and just opening the doors of our lives wide open with no consideration on how that technology will change our lives. But, I mean, his optimism is not just some platitude. He actually put his money where his mouth is. In 1995, so over 25 years ago now, Kevin Kelly made a $1,000 bet with a not-quite-as-optimistic author, Kirk Patrick Sale, who wrote the book Rebels Against the Future. Um, and basically the bet was, would we still still be here in 2020? Kevin Kelly said yes, and things, you know, progress is going to continue. 
Uh, Kirkpatrick Sale said society will collapse by 2020. Oh, wow. <laughs> Old statement. Now, honestly, 2020 probably wasn't the best year for the bet to come to a close. Uh, Kevin Kelly was probably was sweating in a Close game. Bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, but. You know, obviously, we're still here. and At Kirk- the buzzer society. <laughs> yeah. It was a close one. Um, but, I mean, Kirkpatrick was convinced that technology uh, was going to destroy humanity and civilization would collapse um, literally by last year. So, whether you think technology is the driving force for all the world's problems and it's steering us towards inevitable societal collapse, or you think we're on the verge of some utopian technological singularity and that all life is driven by the same force that drives Apple to come out with a new iPhone every year. I mean, if you're seeking the answers to these bigger questions, uh, this is the book for you, man. I mean, what technology wants hits all of those uh, notes and all of those pieces and more. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, I'm really glad that you're explaining it to me this way instead of just like what you were 10 years ago. Yeah, you got to read this book. I'm like, Brad, I'm trying to eat. But um, (laughs) it's, it's very, it's very interesting. And there's, there's so many things in there that like, I feel like there's been like little seeds of some of these thoughts in my mind, but you know, never anything that's been this well formed or thought out. So this definitely is something that I need to revisit now. Like now that I've got a halfway functioning brain and I can take information in, in a timely manner. Well, it seems, yeah, it seems very, very deep and very important for the time that we live in. Well, I know you've got a, a large content circuit going on right now. Um, so the last show note uh, link that I'm going to add, it's, it's a Ted talk from Kevin Kelly. He gave it the year that the book was published. It's really an incredibly succinct summary of some of his main points. So if you want to get the gist of his argument, but you don't quite have time for his book yet, definitely check it out. Um, I I already discussed a few of his points, but it's, it's incredible to see this super unassuming guy. And he gives this like, I mean, the presentation itself is like pretty mediocre, but if you listen to the subject matter, I mean, it is one of the most fascinating subjects ever. And he explains it in a way that really makes sense to me. Um, and it's really, it's a shame that more people haven't been turned on to these ideas. I mean, I really think that he's one of these futurists that has this big picture stuff figured out. Um, and also his graphic novel. I mean, I really want to check this thing out. I, I feel like it's a good format for some of his big ideas and it sounds fascinating, but, um, you know, I just haven't had the chance to to get that yet. But, you know, his 20-minute talk, it's it does the content justice if you want to get a little teaser before diving into the book. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a great link. Good little primer. Well, one last thing. Uh, you know I love a good criticism. <laughs> <laughs> And seriously, see what I can do. <laughs> well, I'm I'm so glad contentology uh, and what we do here is really a a study that's based in an underlying philosophy of appreciation and not criticism. But this golden nugget 
comes from Jerry uh, Coyne. I think I'm saying that right. He's an American biologist. Now, he criticized what technology wants for promoting a view of biological evolution, having a purpose or a goal. Uh, and this is rejected by some scientists. Um, and he, he, his particular critique, he says uh, it's promoting a, quote, bizarre neo-mystical progressivism. <laughs> <laughs> so neo-mystical progressivism is actually the name of the miami club that is going to feature me as miss transneptunium object <laughs> pilot by day space themed drag queen by night so josh i will see you at the neo-mystical progressivism next weekend ladies men everyone is welcome we'll have plenty of existential philosophy and bottomless mimosas <laughs> Bottomless <laughs> well i don't know how you can say no to a deal like that <laughs> So, Kevin Kelly, you're my favorite nerd. Thank you for existing. Thank you for sporting that sweet Amish beard, bro. You nailed it. What technology wants? Check it out. Wow. That sounds absolutely incredible. Bring in the heat again. <laughs> Just like 2020 at the buzzer. <laughs> that is, sounds so good, Brett. And uh, again... The, the show is once again, like, I feel like it's like expanding my mind whenever I have these deep discussions with you. And these are things that we probably never would have really discussed in this amount of detail if it hadn't been for the show. And for that, I am eternally grateful that we uh, took this journey together, utilizing all of this fantastic technology of the world that we live in today, the ability for us to, talk over zoom even though your internet can't seem to handle video today <laughs> i paid for the i paid for the whatever 595 hilton you know premium internet connection it's still not working thanks a lot technology <laughs> really blowing it um, societal collapse is imminent yeah and you know i think that kind of like our disney pixar our we don't see eye to eye on them being the same or different companies. I think that maybe us, whether we live in the most technologically advanced era of humanity may become a new, uh, a new sticking point for the two contentologists here, at the content <laughs> clearinghouse. But the Egyptians thing did not have any virtual reality headsets. I guarantee it that we know of. <laughs> oh man. What did Q tell you? Well, I think one thing that we can both be sure of is that we do appreciate everyone listening to the show. Thanks so much, guys. We really love you for tuning in each week. Um, contact us on social media at the Content Clearinghouse on Facebook or Instagram. We now have a Discord, so we will leave the link in the show notes. Definitely check the Discord out if you want to get in contact with us in a very simple and easy way. Or if you're weird and you'd like to email people, you could email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Uh, other than that, just keep tuning in. We'll keep bringing the heat just like 2020. Thanks, everyone. We love you. We will uh, be back in your ear holes next week.